6: Guys, let's start tonight's classic with a bit of a mea culpa. It's pronounced Genghis Khan, not Genghis Khan. How come that Ninja Turtle character's name is Genghis Frog, though? Okay, well, <laughs> riddle riddle me that,
4: bro. Look, man, all
2: these people want to come through and say, hey, we've been pronouncing it wrong the on whole the History time. Channel. <laughs> come on. I don't know.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is th- there are mysteries uh, about uh, how to pronounce the name and a lot of it is due to of course translation into western languages but there is believe it or not another mystery about Genghis or Genghis Khan and uh it's a mystery that is probably I don't know it might be solved but the odds are against it where the heck is this guy buried I uh, know it's a much more juicy mystery than a pronunciation mystery. I mean, a guy who changed the world such that, uh, such that his DNA is friggin' everywhere. The seed is strong. Yeah,
2: he said, "Y'all make as many statues as you want, but you'll never find me."
6: Mm-hmm. And Matt, I like to picture him in that conversation, just unnecessarily with like a Dracula-style cape. And yeah. he's just like, it's like, you never find me. <laughs> but he doesn't move from the courtroom. He just <laughs> yeah. stands there with the cape. And they all have to pretend he disappeared because he'll kill them otherwise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's jump in. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know.
2: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name
4: is Matt. My name is Noel.
6: They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul the Condecant. Uh, but most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Let's start off on a high note today. Like up here? Ah! Sure, let's okay. do re me, Fasolati Do, our way to Fasolati Death. To death. <laughs> yeah, let's uh let's do that. So death, as it's often said, is one of the main uniting experiences of humanity, right? No matter how different you are, how wealthy, poor, uh, respected or ignored you are, one day you will die.
2: Are you a carbon-based life form? Death awaits, Mm -hmm.
6: indeed. And one of the biggest differences between us uh, human beings listening to this and almost all other living things— including machine consciousnesses that may be listening to this in the future, is that we remember and venerate our dead, our loved ones, or even our hated ones who have passed. Civilizations of old channeled this tremendous amount of energy in preparing for their respective versions of the afterlife, and they created practices that often continue in one form or another in the modern day. For instance, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but it's safe to assume we have all at one point thought about how we want our death to be handled by the people who survive after us.
2: Yeah, generally in this country, it's do you want to be put into the ground, your entire body in its form as Mm. it exists? Mm. Perhaps it's modified. Maybe most of the insides have been taken out. Mm. Maybe you get burned, which is an ancient practice of burning a
4: body. The ancient ritual of the sick burn. Yep, so it goes back farther than you would think.
6: It does. And on a side note, I want to give a shout out to a fantastic documentary that Paul actually made. Uh, and I, I helped out a little bit on it, which was about burial and death specifically. It's
2: called Burial. Is it available right now? It is not available. So you can't ever watch it. <laughs> ever. No, never. You will never be able to watch it. Paul's, apparently it's, paul's, coming, yeah. soon. Paul's it's
6: coming, coming soon paul's coming soon <laughs> so it's uh without spoiling it it is fantastic and along the way we ran into some some very strange things about the legality of burial here in the US but while the specific funeral rites and rituals of some civilizations may be lost to time we do have something equally amazing some people would say even more amazing, and that is physical historical evidence of ancient people and their heroes, many of whom are called villains today. We are talking about tombs,
2: big tombs, mm-hmm. not not just a little grave plot mm-hmm. or a place where
4: you put ashes, a tomb. Yeah, Ben, I think we figured out that the pro or the practice of tombs goes back to mausolus. Was it the idea of an ornate, you know, giant tomb that's decorative, like a mausoleum? That's where that name came that's from. That's the etymology. So, yeah. Pretty interesting.
6: Yeah. And it sounds morbid, sure, for us to to open a show with this. Oh, by the way, uh, conspiracy at conspiracyathowstuffworks.com, we'd love to hear your opinions of the best way to handle a dead body.
2: Yeah, Are you undead or a spirit? How were you buried?
6: Mm-hmm. How did that go? Yeah. Let us know. Uh, And on some level, it is morbid, but we have to think about it. Some of the most meaningful buildings in human history are actually tombs, the pyramids of Egypt, the Taj Mahal in India, even Westminster Abbey in the UK. And today, we're not just talking about the tombs you can visit, and we're not just talking about tourist tips for visiting a famous gravesite. No, we are exploring a genuine and successful cover-up, a mystery spanning almost 1,000 years that remains officially unsolved today. Today, we are searching for the lost tomb of Genghis Khan.
5: The
4: very opposite of the tomb that I was talking about, the mausoleum, which is an above-ground tomb. That was a later development. We're talking about tombs that they don't want you to find, not big old decorative suckers.
2: Yeah, yes. (laughs) And specifically, this fellow named Genghis Khan, who I hate to admit did call Genghis Khan for quite a bit of my life.
6: Yeah, I think it's it's very common for us here in the West because, you know— these are two very different languages, yeah. and we're talking about a vast span of time. So even if you if you spoke um, an adjacent language of the time, the mispronunciation would be very easy to run into.
4: And that's what Bill and Ted called him.
6: Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, yeah,
4: and you see that G
2: E, just that you know, yeah.
6: E after G. Yeah, give me a G. And also, English is such a pirate language. It just <laughs> really? grabs things arbitrarily and arbitrarily. steals for, from other dictionaries. <laughs> so let's let's look at Genghis Khan from from a biographical perspective. Let's start at level one and learn some more about him. His real name was not Genghis Khan. He was born Temujin in Mongolia around one thousand one hundred and sixty-two. Uh, C.E., right? Correct. Yeah. And he was named, oddly enough, after a Tatar chieftain that his father had captured. So it was a point of pride to name him after that. He was a member of a tribe called the Borjijin, And by the way, we are going to most likely mispronounce everything but Genghis Khan here. And – he, Temujin, was a descendant of Kabul Khan, who briefly united the Mongols against the Qin dynasty of northern China in the early 1100s. And
4: ben, Khan isn't in a, in a last name, right? It's a title or like a, refers to being like a king or a
6: powerful, yes. like
4: a conqueror of some yep. sort. Yep.
6: According to the secret history of the Mongols, uh, this fellow Timurjin was born holding a blood clot in his hand, and that might sound weird today, but back then it was an auspicious sign in Mongol folklore, indicating that he was destined to become not just a leader, but a great leader. And he did not have an easy life. He was uh, nine years old when his father passed away. His father was poisoned. Uh, after his father had taken him to live with the family of his future wife, who was named Borte. Uh, this marriage was super arranged, as yeah. you can tell, mm. right? And uh, marrying for romantic notions is also a relatively recent thing in the span of human history. Uh, he So he comes back. His dad dies when he's nine. He comes back to his clan and he says, look, my father's dead, I am the leader. And they laugh at him and <laughs> say, what, yeah. you're nine. Uh, so he and his half-brothers and survivors of that line of the family are relegated to essentially a refugee status until they go on a hunt and he gets in a fight with his half-brother over how to split the spoils of the hunt. And he kills his half-brother, a guy named Bector. This makes him the head of the family.
2: Officially, there's no one to say, ha, 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 No. uh
6: <laughs> right. Yeah.
4: Officially. He's so presumably just like in a fit of blind rage, right? Or I don't know. I'm trying to picture this scenario. Mm. Well, I mean, it was after,
2: right? So after a hunt, you've just exerted yourself a whole bunch, of, mm. a whole group of them. You get back and now you're disputing like who gets what, how much. And yeah. then, mm-hmm. yeah, I can imagine it was.
4: Well, I guess that's sort of a microcosmic version of what war is and conquering is. So he just sort of took that notion and spread it out, blew it up.
6: And to be clear – the hierarchy here is a little bit different. Unless you have a very brutal family today or unless your friendships are very brutal things that I would not call friendships, you're probably going to be a little more fair with people and not as hierarchical. Mm-hmm. But but its uh, tradition plays a huge role in his early life and we see it come out later in the wash. So let's fast forward. He's about 20 years old and the next terrible thing happens – there is a raid by a group called the Taichuts, tai and they used to be allies of his family and tribe, but they betrayed them, and when they captured him, they made him a slave. He eventually escapes, and he starts to form a fighting unit with his surviving brothers and some other uh, aligned clans people, and this is when he begins to form his first army. He's 20 years old. We're glossing over some of his biographical details and focusing kind of on his military rise to power. But there's a
2: huge spiritual
6: aspect to this as well.
2: Search Genghis Khan biography on your favorite search
6: thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he begins this slow ascent to power. He builds this gigantic force of more than 20,000 people. He's just getting started. So he says, you know, tradition has never been kind to me. It made my life very terrible up to this point. So I'm going to destroy some of these traditional divisions amongst various tribes. And I want all the people identifying as Mongols to be under my rule. So he starts out with these absolutely monstrous techniques and tactics to revenge his father's death first thing he orders the killing of every male of the tatar tribe who is more than three feet tall more than about three feet wow so people with growth problems would be the only male adults to survive mm-hmm. and children
4: right? Wait, that way, the three foot rule was a hard and fast thing or you think this is just like what the record shows
6: it's a uh it, it, I think it translates to the the spoke or the axis of a two wheeled cart. Interesting. He also found his former slavers, the Tachi Uts, and had all of their chiefs boiled alive. By 1206, he had defeated another tribe called the Naimans, and he officially, effectively gained control of central and eastern Mongolia. And this is when the rest of the Mongols started saying,
5: I, I don't this guy's kind of wild.
6: Because he was fighting wars differently than anybody else had done before. I don't want to – we don't have to spend too much time on this except for the really cool stuff. He had a ton of spies. He stole every technology or tactic that his enemies used that he thought was good. His army grew to over 80,000 soldiers. And one of the questions you would ask is how how the heck do you communicate to 80,000 people? There's no radio.
4: And that's what set him apart, right? I mean he was not only brutal but crafty. Mm
6: Mm-hmm just my yeah. type
4: yeah it yeah <laughs> uh they he they would use
2: drums like other musical instruments uh smoke signals as ways to communicate pretty pretty good stuff flags even i think and mm-hmm. um Oh yeah, fire was a big deal. So the smoke signals, but then also a torch itself, where you're like waving a torch mm-hmm. in certain ways or lighting a certain number of torches.
6: And I think the terrain helped them too because there was so much flat land and the mm-hmm. steps you could see pretty easily.
4: Clearly, what the Dothraki in uh, Game of Thrones are based on. Yeah, right? this, and, this horde, the riders, mm-hmm.
6: and all that stuff. And George R. R. Martin has been. I think pretty forthcoming about that. He's, I mean, you
4: just can't deny it. He, yeah, you know, if he tried to act like no,
6: no, no, this is my this is my thing. The Dothraki Sea. Yeah, no, he's like, not, uh, not I not think really, you guys are now looking at the uh, the Khanates through the lens of Game of Thrones yes. and Song of Ice and Fire. Mm. So, yeah, the the soldiers did, were on horseback, and the uh, depiction and fiction got that right. Depiction and fiction, love it. Drop a beat, right? Uh, but they were also uniformed, much more so than the Dothraki of fiction. Each each soldier would be riding a horse often, but they all had a bow, a shield, a dagger, a lasso. And this was cool. They had saddlebags that were waterproof, so they could carry supplies. But if they were in a – if they were trying to afford a very deep or dangerous or rough river, they could empty the supplies, leave it with their support system, and make airbags to float. You're kidding me. No.
4: Like what? Like they had a little nipple they'd blow into and—
6: Because yeah. they're waterproof and they can hold air. They, yeah. It's, it's like that old trick we learn in Boy Scouts about how to survive by turning your jeans into a— uh, flotation device? Oh,
4: sure. Like the way when you when you go in the water with your jeans, they fill up and puff up in the front. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, obviously, incredibly innovative stuff here. The idea of a lasso, everything they had had a very specific purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty interesting. And Ben, you, you mentioned um, off mic that they had support staff, I guess, bringing up the rear and making sure they had the supply chain that was opened up. I mean, very yeah. smart, uh, smart maneuvering.
6: Yeah, the shamans who served as spiritual and medical aids, food supplies. This was in, by the way, this is the more peaceful time. <laughs> and after uh, after watching Temujin ruin these first three tribes, the rest started to fall in line. They sued for peace and that's when he got the title, which is not his name, the title, we know him by today, Genghis Khan, which means universal ruler, the uh-huh. Khan of Khans, the king of kings. Like the Cal of Kals. Like the Kal of Kals, like yeah. Khal Drogo. Uh-huh. So, it goes beyond what we think of as a general or an admiral or something because the leading shaman additionally declared that Genghis Khan was the representative of the supreme god of the Mongols on earth, Monke Koko Tengri, the eternal blue sky. And this meant that as far as any practicing Mongol was concerned, it was this guy's destiny to rule the world. They were also very religiously tolerant. They thought religion was a personal matter, super forward facing for the time, but with one exception. To defy the great Khan was to defy the will of God with all the consequences that came along.
4: Well, and there's a nice little recreation vignette in one of the documentaries we're going to talk about later where um, Temujin goes to the top of a very important mountain that we'll get to later and asks the st- the sky god, like, what he should do. And that's supposedly where he got the inspiration to go forth and, and conquer.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
6: And that mountain <laughs> plays a huge role too, right? yeah. yeah. So 1207, he attacks a kingdom called Xixia, and in 1211, he takes the Xin dynasty in northern China, or he tries to. He launches a bloody campaign that lasts 20 years. In the West, he initially resorts to honest diplomacy.
4: Let's give it a try.
6: Yeah, let's give it a shot. He sends a diplomatic mission to an outfit called the Khwarizm dynasty. And think think of this as like modern Persia, Afghanistan, and Turkestan. And this is where we see trade becoming the most – one of the most significant historical results of the empire because they're uniting the east and the west, which normally did not have regular trade. Which requires a little more diplomacy rather than brute force. We need to cooperate to make things
4: better for each other rather than kill each other. Right.
6: We have to be able to know that if we send silk somewhere leagues and leagues away, it will return – with our emissaries alive and with the money we wanted to trade. But... Yeah, yeah, this diplomatic
2: mission did not turn out so great.
6: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because as it turns out, establishing yourself through very well-known public acts of bloody revenge makes people hesitant to trust you. So, on the way, his diplomatic caravan was attacked by forces under the control of the governor of Otrar. The Khan was pissed. He demanded... That the uh, the Shah of the Khwarizm give him the governor. The Shah not only said no, but he sent something in substitution. He sent Genghis Khan, the head of one of the diplomats he had sent.
4: I know this is outside the scope of this episode, but I did not realize they were calling them Shahs that far back. I didn't know the the, the um, history of that term went back to this period.
6: That that term has evolved through a lot of different periods and this this guy's title was that Mm -hmm. but it was his title so much so that it was his name oh i see i see you know and so he gets the head of this diplomat and this is what historians refer to as you know a we should just say it the technical term It's when shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. So the Khan, who's never the biggest fan of playing nice, launches an overwhelming attack that sweeps through Central Asia all the way into Europe, changing the course of history. In 1219, he sends 200,000 soldiers against this dynasty, the Khwarizm dynasty. And the people in the way— The people who were not immediately slaughtered or sexually assaulted to the point of death were driven in front of the enemy to serve as human shields until they starved.
4: And you might be thinking to yourself, I haven't heard of this Khwarazim dynasty. Yeah. There's a reason. I mean, they were wiped from the record more. I mean, from history, you know.
6: Yeah. In 1221, they were erased from the face of the earth. No living thing was spared on the way to that erasure. The livestock was slaughtered along with all the men, women, and children. The army piled their victims' skulls in these large pyramid-shaped mounds. And then in 1221, yes, the Khan erased the dynasty from the face of the planet. And after that, the empire entered into what passed for peace at the time. There were a lot of progressive laws about crime, religion, trade. There were even environmental uh, considerations. That's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, but it doesn't change the fact that everything that all of the citizens of that, let's call it, I don't know, civilization, Mm -hmm. it was all built on blood. Like Mm -hmm. blood,
4: bones, rape. Mm -hmm. It's it's like – Blood money. It's conquest. I mean, you can't – you know, the people that were taken I – mean, I don't know. The people that weren't killed that were assimilated into this culture and then had their families taken from them, from them couldn't have been super stoked right. on the rulers here.
6: Right. And this governing structure is set up so that the conquered people are required to offer tribute. And a lot of times that's going to be in terms of agricultural resources because – this empire is hungry, right? And the empire will also expect that vassal states or communities supply tribute in terms of troops. When the Tangut dynasty of Shishia, uh refuses to send troops for the Khan's big war against that other dynasty, he rides out, sacks their capital, puts down the rebellion, and just to make sure people get the message, he executes the entire extended ruling family and he ends their bloodline as well. So that's Two dynasties wiped from the face of the earth, and soon after that, the Khan himself dies. Well, damn, that's anticlimactic.
4: He <laughs> accomplished <gobbled> so much, <laughs> and then it's just like, I'm out.
6: Alexander yeah. the Great died at 32. I know it's true. Thinking he was a failure. Think about all those
4: twenty seven year old rock gods. Oh, okay. <laughs> when you put it like that, I guess it makes sense. But yeah, he's 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 done. So how how does how does he die, Matt?
2: Well, experts disagree on exactly how the con expired and that's one of the reasons we're making this whole episode. Uh, the the details surrounding his death, where he's laid. There are a lot of questions here. There's a the whole idea that perhaps he fell off a horse because he was an old – he was an aging man. He was getting older and he died because of, you know, maybe a wound he had received in battle that wasn't mm. fully healed or something. Mm. Um, there's an idea that perhaps he couldn't breathe very well as he's getting a little bit older. Um, he's got. How some... old
4: was he supposedly when he died?
2: Is this? Well, he died in 1227, and uh, since he was born way back in the day in 1162, that makes him. Uh, that would be about sixty-five. No. Oh. Yeah, that's ma- not too shabby for for those yeah, days. Sixty-five years old. Uh, that's a great age. Um, one after the Beatles song which is nice and um he didn't get to he didn't get to hear that song sadly
6: well you know assuming that he uh, died but uh, cuz you'll hear some people say hey what if he just never died but He's just on that island with Tupac and Elvis, yeah, mm-hmm.
4: there's
2: a, there's a whole other thing the idea to, i don't know if, it's it's not a joke it's kind of a joke but it's not the whole shot in the knee thing you got took an arrow to the knee and he no right. longer is a uh used to be an adventurer, but he can't anymore.
6: I thought you would like that one. <laughs> I had to I had to put that in there. Wait, what is this? That comes from Marco Polo. Marco Polo had uh, written about the rise and fall of the Khan, and he heard that just like the city guard in Skyrim, the Khan was shot in the knee. And then he got infected. Oh, I do he remember died. that. He yeah. says
4: it like – it's like every character says that same song. I used story. to be an adventurer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took <laughs> an arrow to the, <laughs> knee. to the knee.
2: Yeah,
6: and uh, it's – we don't know if the folks who made that game – meant for that to be such a reference, but we're going to pretend it is, and please join along with us. Well, it's certainly
4: better than just falling off your horse when you're meant to be this badass, like, leader, rider guy. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be pretty embarrassing.
6: Especially with the cultural importance based on horsemanship. Yeah. So following his tribal customs, the parts of the tradition that he did adhere to, he was buried without markers somewhere, allegedly, near the place of his birth. According to legends, the funeral escort that carried him to this burial site killed anyone they saw along the way and anything they encountered. The slaves who built the site were killed, the soldiers who killed them were killed by a different troop without, you know, I don't think those that first wave of soldiers knew, effectively creating uh, this century's version of an air gap security system. It's
4: like that scene in the Batman movie with the Joker, the Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger Joker, that heist they pull off where everybody kills everybody else until there's nobody left. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah.
6: But on Is that mass, a spoiler,
4: have you not seen this movie? I've seen it. I cannot remember that oh, okay. part. It's like the opening.
6: It says, I think it's in the trailer. I think so. Uh, so the empire goes on. Khan, has bestowed supreme leadership to his son, Ogdai, who controls most of Eastern Asia, including China. He's divided the rest of the empire amongst his other children. Uh, one gets control over Central Asia and northern Iran. The youngest gets a small piece of land near Mongolia. Uh, his other son, who had died before him, had already taken control of modern-day Russia with a son named Batu. They created the legendary thing called the Golden Horde, and that is uh, more of I, I think that's probably the closest thing George R. R. Martin's going for because those forces meet European forces and tactics.
4: Yeah, and even in Game of Thrones, there's the Golden Company, which is <laughs> yeah. another kind of horde that's more for hire. I
6: yeah, they're a mercenary crew, yeah, yeah. and this empire eventually reaches all the way to the gates of Vienna in Austria, until this is how fragile history is until the word of the khan's death reaches batu he's summoned back to mongolia he turns east and we can only imagine that most of the people in all points west of vienna went
4: so that seems like this isn't like a dumb move like if you're already like ready to go mm-hmm. you've made it this far That really shows the the ancestor, you know, the respect for ancestors in this culture. Like they're just stopping what we're doing. We're done. We've got to go back and take care of dad. Mm -hmm. That's crazy.
6: And the empire soldiered on for a while, but – You know, fame and power messes with people and the Khan's descendants eventually broke off into smaller regions called Khanates that did cooperate but later became competitive. Uh, The trade system most importantly began to break down and the rulers began to be seen by the common folk as increasingly assimilated with the people they were supposed to be ruling. So like they would say the Mongolians who were ruling part of China are no longer really Mongolian. They're soft.
4: So they kind of died with a whimper and not a bang. No big final blood war, just a little bit, just kind of faded into the background.
6: Kind of. There was one factor that was bloody Mm. and it was not human. Humans just helped it along. At the same time these empires begin to fall and assimilate, the Black Plague strikes it destabilizes the world trade networks that were already suffering or are, are falling into massive disrepair as everybody's trying to figure out why everyone around them is dying. About thirty percent of China's population falls to the plague, as well as anywhere from twenty-five to fifty percent of the population in Europe. So, yeah, it's a it's it's a grisly rise, a grisly fall, but. Regardless of whether you think he's one of the world's best military commanders, a global hero, or an infamous villain, one thing's for sure, Genghis Khan changed history. So what happened to him?
2: Well, that's the thing. Nobody really knows except for those people that got, according to legend, assassinated immediately after they they buried him. That is so hardcore. So uh, even today, right now, the search continues. Uh,
6: officially.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm outside of, you know, maybe the Secret Keepers. Maybe there is a group, a small group of Secret Keepers, and we'll learn about that right after a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Hey, Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail.
4: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's
2: like the police knew who he was before they got here.
3: A story about money, power, and corruption.
6: here's where it gets crazy according to oral folklore and legend the empire went to great lengths to erase the location of the khan's tomb from the world as we mentioned the funeral escort killed people they encountered on the way to and from the site which is a little complicated because the people who knew the way there got killed when they were there. And then the other people who killed the slaves and the soldiers who killed the slaves, uh, they probably never saw the tomb, at least according to the story.
4: So again, well, well, well before this in 353 BC, we had Greek cultures that were – venerating their dead with these ostentatious monuments that Mm -hmm. were there for everyone to worship and see Mm -hmm. totally different style of burial here Mm -hmm. they are killing their countrymen to keep them from spreading the word of where this leader would have been buried and for what reason we'll we'll, we'll get to that
6: yeah and uh, for another cultural reference killing people who construct a tomb of a leader is unfortunately not uncommon. There have been other cases in ancient cultures where slaves were killed not to keep a secret, but as a sacrifice to serve the leader in the afterlife.
4: I was going to ask, do you think they were like surprised or, or were they going into this knowing they probably weren't going to come back?
6: That part has lost to history Yeah, and stuff that to, it's, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, I wouldn't do that if I knew what was going to happen, you know, with the benefit of looking back from 2018. But the fact of the matter is we don't have documentation that tells us anything about the understanding or the motivation of the slaves or the soldiers, because there's very little documentation about Khan at right. all. Right, there's the secret history of the Mongols, which is often considered not a hundred percent accurate, and it leaves a lot of things out. But it's you know we've this far back in history, there's a constant search for sources. Right, you
4: got to put it together based on artifacts mm-hmm. and just kind of like finding stuff and putting the pieces together and saying this is probably how it went down.
6: Yeah, and based on what the people who – what kind of frame of reference or cultural perspective the earlier investigators were coming from. Like we're still – we got to be clear. This stuff we're talking about here is the realm of legend. The tomb was allegedly hidden and folklore gives us conflicting – methods of camouflage. In one story, an entire river was diverted over the Khan's grave so that no one could find it ever. In another version, they had horses trample across the ground and then they planted trees on the site so that you couldn't find any clear traces of somebody digging. Uh, And then another story says that permafrost itself erased all traces of the site. Uh, There's another guy in... 1662, uh, a work called the Erdini Topchi that argues Genghis Khan's coffin was empty when it arrived in Mongolia. It's, very, it's, a, it's a conspiracy theory that has echoes in the modern day. Uh, and then there's another Atlan Topchi that, from 1604 that says only Genghis Khan's shirt, tent, and his boots were buried.
2: Shirt, shoes, tent, no service. You
6: know what I'm saying? <laughs> In the afterlife, yeah. But essentially after he died, people began searching for this tomb. One legend said that it was found as soon as 30 years later. This is the weirdest one I found. Was It was found 30 years later because a camel was buried with the Khan, a young camel, and that the camel's mother found the grave and started weeping over the death of its child.
4: sounds like a... Fairy tale.
6: Sounds very Pixar, mm-hmm. Bambi, Disney movie esque. Probably not true, but it is possible that the burial site was somewhere around wild camel routes. And
4: then the tears seeped into the soil and the camel was resurrected by the power of love.
6: Mm-hmm. As long as the children watching nearby clapped their hands. Mm-hmm. That's probably not true, but uh, we do have some proving. Prove that it's
2: not true. <laughs> Prove that it's I'm saying true? the camel thing is so real.
6: Yeah? I hope it is, Matt. I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it is. I, I would, want that to be true. I would love to hang out I'm with a I'm so camel.
2: deep in Disney movies now. That's got to be real.
6: What are the good Disney movies?
2: Coco. Uh,
4: Coco's pretty good. Which my, one is My Cocoa? son calls
2: it The Boy with the Bones.
4: Yeah. The bone oh, boy. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. That's yeah. a solid one. Did you see Incredibles 2 yet? No. There's a short before it that will... Got you, my friend. It's called Bao. It's about a dumpling. Oh,
6: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So the thing about Disney films and Pixar films as well is, oh, I just realized pretty soon every film's going to be a Disney film. Yep. They're buying it all. They're buying it all. They might buy us.
2: They already did.
6: (laughs) Please buy us Disney. Please buy us Disney. (laughs) I will will not say no to tickets or a mascot costume. That's for sure. Uh, But the – The thing about these films, these Disney films, is that they are proven historical resources. We can look at them. We can see what happened in them. It's not just oral folklore. And we have some documentation from this time, oddly enough, via Marco Polo. He wrote about his travels, and he wrote about what he saw as the attitudes of Mongolian people themselves uh, and the speculation over the site of the grave. According to him... People in Mongolia did not know where the tomb was as early as the late 13th century. So even just a few decades after the death, they were saying, we don't know where he is. He's gone. And he was like, Marco. Oh, snap. I think you mean Polo. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
6: My man. We are Poe lowering uh, the bar on the puns today, right? <laughs>
2: Marco did have a guess, though. And in the travels of Marco Polo, he writes that, it has been an invariable custom that all the Grand Khans and chiefs of the race of Genghis Khan should be carried for internment to a certain lofty mountain named Altai. <laughs> and in whatever place <laughs> they may happen to die, although it should be at the distance of a hundred days' journey, mm-hmm. they are nevertheless conveyed thither. Uh.
4: Oh, Marco Polo, what a... That
6: was great. And
4: I do believe (laughs) the illustrious Khan may have died from an arrow to the knee. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I
6: like the julep this guy's sipping. Also, Matt, that that accent totally had me convinced you were about to go, It's beyond...
2: Oh, Whoa! <laughs> yeah, same thing. Right?
4: <laughs> yeah, uh, oh, <laughs> I only man. do one voice, so no, it's, it's great. It. Oh, but the precision, Matt—it's doing it drips like butter. It's the <laughs>
6: true voice of history. Matt Mint
4: Julep Frederick, mm-hmm. <laughs> taking a
6: big old journey across Mongolia and the steppes
2: up that mountain all time. <laughs>
6: Oh, man, I want to make a video game and just have you narrate all the characters. I'm
2: down with that. Hey, developers out there, please
6: let me voice your game. And Ben, yeah. will,
4: ben will do it, and Noel will do it, and Paul will do it. No, it'll just be you, and it'll just be a game full of old men
6: okay. sauntering
4: around the Mongolian <laughs> wastes. It's,
2: it's,
6: including the love interests. Oh, yes. It'll
2: <laughs> it'll be the Westworld game, and I'll, I'll just play the old guy. Hey, no spoiler. Hey. Oh, okay,
6: okay. <coughs> now everybody knows there's an old person <laughs> yeah. in a TV God. show. Just, just let me play Delos's grandfather.
4: Who? Oh, so it's over for me now.
6: Uh, yeah, but people are probably programmed where they they haven't gotten to the level of consciousness that they can't hear that spoiler. Uh, you're killing right. me. You guys are killing me. <laughs> so in 1937, rumors surfaced that the Soviet government had found and stolen a banner. From this Buddhist monastery, this remote Buddhist monastery, and the banner had clues leading you to the gravesite. Nothing came of that. Who
2: let those guys have
6: that? No one. They Uh, took it.
4: They probably started the rumor themselves. They're a little braggadocious over
6: there in the Soviet Union, if I'm going to be honest. It might be in 37 when we did the – great game yeah! Uh, podcast about Shambhala. This is probably associated with that. It's just some disinfo, man. Mm-hmm. The searches continued, and they had that same pattern that we see in so many of these sorts of investigations. There were all these tantalizing clues. Somebody finds a button, they find a gold coin, they find like an ancient bow, uh, but they find no concrete proof leading to the grave. There's a very sad story here. An amateur archaeologist named Maury Kravitz dedicated decades of his life to searching for this tomb, and he was basing a lot of his research and his excavations, which were quite expensive, Mm -hmm. on the writings of a 15th century French Jesuit. He was convinced, based on this guy's records, that the site would be near the Khan's, quote, favorite place, the Confluence, C-O-N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E, of the Kerlin and quote, Bruchi rivers, with a place named Birkon Khaldun over his right shoulder, Kravitz couldn't find a river named Bruchi, which most people would think to mean that he's just confused the name or that it doesn't exist. Yeah, Bruchy Main. Mm-hmm.
4: No, it can, and isn't the Khaldun, the 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 uh, the Birkin the mountain in question? Right, so, from earlier from uh, the reaching his hands up mm-hmm. to the sky god.
6: So everybody believes that it's got to be somehow related to this mountain. Uh, but he did find something called uh, a toponym, uh, Barun Brooch or West Brooch. And a, a toponym is a place name that is derived from a topographical feature. I was oh, cool. ask, That is really cool. Never, that's a new one for me. It's <laughs> T-O-P-O-N-Y-M. That's yeah, the new it's word of the day. Topography and yep.
4: nym, and I guess. Yeah.
6: Uh, and this area was about a hundred kilometers east of Burkhan Khaldun, so not that far. Uh, Kravitz died without ever finishing or failing his search for the tomb. Mm-hmm. Makes ne- you never think, quit.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it makes you think about all those people who have spent their life looking for something like the Holy Grail, like putting all of their life's work into something like that. Or mm-hmm. uh, what? What are what are some of these other legendary things? Oak the, Island. Uh, oh. Yeah.
6: <laughs> oh, jeez. Things that don't want to be found.
4: <laughs> yeah. But thankfully, Maury's young grandson, Lenny, went on to become an incredible rock star, a rock god. Yeah. Sports yep. leather pants like no one's ever done in the history of, of yeah.
6: rock and Yeah, had wonderful children. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to uh, most of his albums, you'll see that the lyrics are, are actually about the search for the tomb of Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm. The whole thing. No. Are you
4: going to go my way?
6: That's about Genghis Khan.
4: The way of the Khan. my Yeah. yeah. None of this is true. Well, that all is, of this is true. Okay. The one
2: fault is he wrote it about Genghis Khan rather than
4: Genghis Khan. And that's what kind of oh, tripped no. him up all the time. Oh. We oh, fail. <laughs> Pronunciation fails. It's, it's better when we catch ourselves though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Agreed. This this is lean into it.
6: So uh, there are other possible locations. Marco Polo has that admittedly vague but uh, amazingly performed by Matt mention of Altai. Other theories include something from the Yuan dynasty, which uh, the Yuan dynasty is Mongol descended. You know how we are talking earlier about um, ruling populations that were thought to have assimilated too egregiously? Mm-hmm. These, this is one example. And the Yuan dynasty believed that all Mongol khans were Buried in the area of Genghis Khan's tomb, a site known as Chinyan Valley, but there's no in, in all the records talking about this valley, there's no specific mention of where that tomb is. Oh. They just wow. talk around it as if yeah. they know where it is. So
4: was it's it like you know, the valley beyond. Yeah, it? but they, was it exclusive to to Genghis, him being the big the big kahuna. That they would hide his tomb or would they have have hid all of their burial sites?
2: Like a
6: valley of the Khans. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, the tradition is not to mark them.
2: Yeah. That's right. Where you were born too, right? Like where you originate.
6: mm -hmm. Uh, There's another bit of folklore that says he's buried at the peak of – or on a peak rather in the Kenti Mountains. And that's Burkhan Khaldun. Uh, he had hidden from enemies on that mountain as a young man. That's where he made that spiritual pledge, right, to return there in death. So for centuries, it seemed like this was going to be a hopeless fool's errand. It's a huge country. It's not very populated it's almost as if the few humans sprinkled there are just to give us a sense of scale about how vast yeah. and empty
4: it is it's a very unforgiving terrain
6: it's a very unforgiving terrain uh, but there was there there was something that seemed set to change the expedition's game uh, that arrived very recently and that is the emergence of cutting-edge technology, which we'll dive into after a word from our sponsors.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand-new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
2: Jean. Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it!
1: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you ride the books, Gene, and Vlastar runs
2: the business. I understand now
3: This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption.
0: We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish.
3: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And we're back. And enter Dr. Albert Lin. He's the, let's say he's the most well-known example of somebody who's using technology in the hunt for this lost tomb.
6: And you, you're a huge fan of this guy, right,
2: Matt? I am. I've only, I've only spent, I, let's say, it's probably about 48 minutes with him, roughly, that I've spent with him on screen. Oh, I thought you uh, meant, okay. like, hanging out. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Okay, Wow. No. I, I love the work that he's doing, yeah. and it seems very admirable and going back to his roots. He's got uh, a cool backstory about yeah. what led
4: him uh, to this ultimate journey. Yeah. Yeah. He was in grad school, and he went back to Mongolia yes. and yes. Like, bought a horse and ended up like staying with these nomadic people mm-hmm. and um, kind of hearing about this potential for a hidden site that mm-hmm. we're talking about, and it intrigued him. Oh, Quite yeah. a lot, obviously.
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's really awesome. It's something we've discussed on this show a lot before. Using hmm. lidar and other new technologies yeah. to be able to find hidden tombs, hidden uh, archaeology that exists out there in the world. And he's actually doing it. And he convinced, in this case, National Geographic to go out and, you know, fund his research and mm-hmm. fund his journeys. Pretty oh.
6: awesome. Yeah, LIDAR is uh, stands for light detection and ranging. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a remote sensing method. You've probably heard when we talked about lost civilizations, how this technology has been used. And luckily for Lynn and co, this has progressed by leaps and bounds. Nor weren't you mentioning that drone that used LIDAR?
4: Yeah, he's got a really, like early, when I say early, I think this was in what? Was
6: 2011. 2011 is when the doc came out. Yeah, so, so it, like it was
4: probably, probably nine, 9 and 10. Nine his, 10 right?
6: Yeah, he started his search, I think, started in 08.
4: Yeah. So, you know, at that time, drone technology was, it, it's like the military thing we always talk about where mm-hmm. it's, um, they hold back stuff or they only have, like, the good stuff for <laughs> the big boys in the military, mm-hmm. and then it eventually trickles down to what I like to call prosumer technology, where it's going to be quite expensive to get a good one. Uh, And and they had one. They had, uh, I'm not sure exactly, Matt, you may have mentioned what the model might have been of this drone. Oh, no, I don't know the actual model. But it was definitely a really tight drone uh, equipped with some kind of LiDAR technology that they could use to do topographical, like, aerial maps.
2: Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure Jonathan, uh, our own Jonathan Strickland, went to CES that year, or a version of CES at the time, Uh and uh, talked about those first prosumer drones.
6: Yeah, I think you were correct. They, they also used satellite imagery. They had some assistance from uh, some satellite companies. Mm-hmm. And with this and the LIDAR, which they describe as non-invasive ground-based imaging, they were able to identify and study dozens and dozens of archaeological sites, including some ancient burial mounds, none of which so far have turned out to be the cons.
4: We should point out too that it's a big deal. Big important part of this is that the Mongolian government, they they won't let anybody dig. There's no there's a no-dig policy. So this was his solution to like let's do a virtual dig.
6: Yeah. And they also so very quickly they run into this problem. We're we're gonna let's talk a little in depth about this, because this is the most well-known recent search and the one that has the highest probability of success, honestly.
4: He did it very smartly.
6: Yeah. So he also crowdsourced. Their team said, look, we're getting way too many images. We're getting way too much stuff to go through. If you are interested in this, you do not have to be a PhD level archaeologist. We want to use you as what Dr. Lin called a human computation network. So they got thousands of Quote citizen archaeologists, that's what they called them, to review more than 85,000 images from this that they had gotten through this company called Digital Globe. That's yeah. their mm-hmm. satellite partner. And these were images of that forbidden zone. That's the mm-hmm. name of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's where you cannot dig. And parts of that area used to be entirely restricted to royal families of Mongolia. So it's a big deal for people to even. Be able to go out there, and he published a paper about this called Combining GOI One Satellite Remote Sensing, UAV Aerial Imaging, and Geophysical Surveys in Anomaly Detection Applied to Archaeology. Sexy, I it's well, really
4: cool. The, the kicker, right, is these, these anomalies because when yeah. you look at the aerial footage, there's stuff down there that's clearly man made. He says if mm-hmm. it's like squared off looking, sure. or it's these little nipple looking things, mm-hmm. little bounds kind of that's quote-unquote, like, odd. Mm-hmm. But he said the sheer amount of data was just too, 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 too much for a team of of however many he had access to to, to yeah. mess with, right. just to mine through it all, hence the crowdsourcing. So he basically got a bunch of people to do a bunch of grunt work for him for free.
2: Well, the the images were roughly one pixel to one meter.
4: That's amazing. So, like, you're literally looking at all of the land space.
6: That, yeah, that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot of uh, – Computer. Enhance. (laughs) Yeah. But
4: then what did the aggregate look like when all the results were in, all these clicks, Mm -hmm. all these people taking on these deals? what What did they get back that made it interesting?
6: They had a distinct lack of a tube. Of Genghis Khan's tomb,
4: but they but they saw yeah. clusters of things that yeah. they could kind of pinpoint. Uh, right, areas so they that, were able to ma-
6: yeah map out civilizations, places where it may be more likely for the tomb to uh, be located, mm-hmm. especially if the folks from the Yuan Dynasty were correct and that. There was some sort of knowledge of the mm-hmm. tomb's location, and that the cons were secretly buried there. There
4: was a thing about it being betwixt two rivers or something, right, and which so go back
6: to and the proximity to the mountain, of course. That's
4: right. That's right. I think they found what he redescribed as an Iron Age tomb, mm-hmm. um, but it had just been picked clean by grave robbers. He said, looking for arrowheads or something. Yeah, so, yeah. But you're right, Ben. They, mm-hmm. you know, all this cool tech, yeah, didn't amount to a a, a, a whole hilla hilla con. Helicon, that's one,
2: good. one other... Yeah, Helicon. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks.
4: Um, one of the other really cool things they had were uh, the
2: LiDAR actually back in backpack style or something. So they're walking <laughs> around yeah. across uh, these areas that have been, you know, mm-hmm. clustered together with mm-hmm. a bunch of different people mm-hmm. seeing them. And they're walking mm-hmm. just with a LiDAR on their back. I want to do that, Ben.
6: I want that for you. I feel like you've earned that. I, I think
4: some kind of rolling cart version of it, too,
6: mm-hmm. that I saw in the mm-hmm.
4: video that I was a little confused about what, what it was, but... They definitely had a lot of tech, and that was a big part of the uh, of the of the show was the, how much gear they yeah. had, you know.
6: And we can't downplay what they found because mm-hmm. they found a lot of amazing, astonishing things. They just found those as a result of searching for the thing that they have yet to find, and that's because there are. And this this is maybe the strangest part of today's story. There are some massive problems with the search. Uh, Noel, you and I, like we briefly mentioned. The terrain. Because first off, spoiler alert, Mongolia is the definition of remote. Most of the country outside of the capital, Ulaanbaatar, uh, does not have roads Mm -hmm. or rooted cities. There's still many communities living in the nomadic tradition on the steppes. And then, just for comparison, I found this fascinating. This really set it in stone in my mind. Mongolia is more than seven times the size of Great Britain, and it has about 2 percent the amount of roads that Great Britain has.
4: Wow. It's so funny. uh, I recently took a flight over the Great Salt Flats in Mm -hmm. Salt Lake City. And that was the closest kind of terrain that I could kind of compare to this. It's not desert, but it's very like you look down and it's like there's nobody down there. Yeah. There are no roads. And it's like I felt like I was flying over the moon. And it was it's beautiful, but it's also, like, very alien. I have, I have a feeling there's a similar quality over, over there in Mongolia.
6: There was one – yeah, when I, I drove through the salt flats on a completely non-sketchy thing, and it was one of the few times in my life I thought, man, if the car breaks down, that's it. Mm-hmm. it it's over for me.
4: Yikes. They make a good point, too, in the documentary how they take – Older trucks and stuff because yeah. they're easier to fix out mm-hmm. in the field and there would be like, no, you're not going to find a Volkswagen shop
6: <laughs> there, nope. you know. No. And even with those trucks that have like 4 by 4 capability and stuff, they have to send some people on horseback yeah, to, to different it, sites, good, right? The, the stuff, yeah. So –
4: Oh, I see what you're saying because they yeah. couldn't get right up onto it with the vehicle. They had yeah. to like send out parties. Yeah, that's totally
2: true. What we need to do is have teams that go in behind the search teams that can set up
4: supply lines.
6: Oh, yeah. There we go. Right? Yeah. I think
4: that's how we, we conquer this whole thing. <laughs> So that was the smartest little detail yeah. of Khan's brigade that that just, I'm like wow that is mm-hmm. they really had it figured out.
6: Mm-hmm. There's also some speculation that climate change played a role in the expansion of the empire because they did they were running out of resources mm. agriculturally to feed people. Sure. And I, I always I hadn't considered that and maybe that played a role in the later environmental laws. That he instituted. There was another Dude.
4: video that auto-played after the documentary we're talking about. It was an Australian fellow who tried to follow the path that the Mongols would have mm-hmm. taken and he kept running into the problem where there wasn't enough grass for the horses to graze on. Right. So that the horses would get skinny over time and you could picture that happening. Mm-hmm. Wow. For real, like back in the day if it's like the resources aren't there, you can't feed your horses, you can't feed your horses, you can't
6: Keep on, going yeah. on with this nomadic lifestyle. The only way is forward to find the, uh, what do they call them in Song of Ice and Fire, excuse me, Game of Thrones, the sheep people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the lambsmen. Lamb people, yeah. I think yeah. that's it, that's right. And here, here's the strangest, most disturbing part. One of the reasons, possibly one of the reasons that the tomb is yet to be found despite all this blood, sweat, tears, and amazing technology applied to the question is that Some people, many people, do not want it to be found, especially native Mongolians. They Mm -hmm. don't want the tomb to be disturbed. This is often described, at least here in the West, uh, in terms of a curse. They'll say that Maury Kravitz died because he got too close and was cursed. And this idea is is that disturbing or even discovering the grave of the Khan will set in motion this catastrophic series of events triggering something like World War III. However, what's interesting here as well is that many Mongolians who reject these spiritual concerns and say, ah, the idea of a curse is just a bunch of gobbledygook, they still don't want the tomb discovered. In their opinion, uh, for people who would consider themselves skeptical but want this to remain unknown. Uh, Their opinion is that if it was the Khan's wish, if it was Genghis Khan's wish that his body not be found, then his wishes should be respected. This mixture of fear and respect is codified in the modern day. The mountains that often come up as candidates in the search for the tomb are still considered sacred. Uh, There were recent reports of a Mongolian researcher and a journalist who I believe was British who were not, still not allowed in the modern day to climb Burkhan Khaldun because they were women Oy. yeah and it's still it now uh, it used to be the area that used to be known as the Ik or great taboo is now, now called the Khan Kental strictly protected area it's a world heritage site and because of this designation it's been off limits to most researchers
2: which, it's a strictly protected area like yeah,
6: which, how'd land get up in there though National Geographic's got some pull. I guess that's true. Yeah.
4: He tells an interesting story about how near the end of their project, or at some point um, after they've been there for a while, he was approached by their representatives of the local shaman. Yes. And there's this great. Story. Send your leader. It's it's clearly the central, you know, kicker of his TED talk moment where he, you know, (laughs) I'm shaking and why are you here? Why are you here? And who are you? And ask him all these very existential questions. But ultimately, isn't like angry, isn't like get out, Mm -hmm. isn't like don't do anything. Because at the the end of the day, they're not going to dig it up. They're just like trying to get some answers. And, you know, but my big question to you guys is, who cares? Why? What's 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 there to find? Why do we need to see a body? Why do we need to see these remnants?
6: Because it could create a watershed moment in archaeology. First off, it would, it would clarify the questions about the death, right? It would, it would also, from the perspective of any Mongolian parties who want the tomb to be discovered, it would be a massive cultural boon, you know? Uh, we would also probably find a lot of stuff that's buried with him. That would answer questions about engineering, questions about human technology at the time Mm -hmm. that that we wouldn't know ordinarily. But I think um, – We don't have that from other sources. Right. I think the – yeah, to continue, I think that the primary appeal for many people who are not Mongolian is the – the proving or disproving of various myths, this is old enough for a lot of it to be essentially legend. Okay, And then also a bit of romanticization. I don't think we can escape that. I think there's there's clearly a, uh, a bit of a rosy picture people paint. But I have a question for you guys, which is what about this, this curse thing? It doesn't come out a whole cloth. I mean we've seen other historical leaders be, uh, have their tombs described as cursed.
4: Yeah, it's true. This guy named George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert, a.k.a. <laughs> the Earl of Carnivon, uh was quite a fancy man uh, who fancied himself an amateur Egyptologist.
6: Wait, hey, was he... carnavon is real? Is that real?
4: Yeah, that's he was the Earl of Car- Car, uh, Car- Carnarvon. Carnarvon, Carnarvon, let's call it. I don't I know. I like it. Get, get, yeah. Get, get, c- come, just, come at me, Brits. Um, but yeah, he, <laughs> you know, he, he, um, he apparently actually grew up in a High Clare Castle, which is the estate where they filmed Downton Abbey. So Whoa. A very fancy boy.
6: He has those bona fides. Yeah, yeah. he sure does. But
4: he also really was into um, Egyptology and single handedly, um, using wielding his influence and his obscene wealth, um, paid for an expedition. To open the tomb of the boy king, King Tutankhamen. Tut, Ooh. yeah, Tut. Looks nice. like rain. Well, Tut <laughs> himself.
6: Okay, yeah. So what? What happened? What well,
4: happened? He hired this young upstart uh, archaeologist, kind of a Brendan Fraser type. Sure, oh, in, definitely in his prime. Uh-huh. Yeah, not, yeah. not not modern day Brendan Fraser. Like a man. Kind of sad. Yeah, <laughs> Howard Carter was this man's name. Yeah, um, they had met through a guy named Gaston. Mospero, who was the director uh, general of the Egyptian Department of Antiquities. And, yeah, they, they opened up this tomb and they found all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, very shortly after visiting Thebes to visit the site of the spoils of his investment, mm-hmm. we're going to call him Carnarvon, as, as is befitting his station, he, he died in short order after getting, get this, bit by a mosquito. Whoa. Whoa. So we got like the
2: malaria or some it blood just, virus? Yeah, something real bad. And, I,
4: and I'm, not, I'm not going as far. I'm not saying that didn't that wasn't common. Sure. But man, what a kick in the pants. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Or a bite in the leg.
6: Yeah. That's arrow exactly. in the knee. And that's its own, you know, that's almost its own episode, The Curse of King Tut, right? Yeah. We, I bet we've, we could do. Do we already do that?
4: I
2: know we've done a video for sure. It all blurs, but search, search for it. See if you can find it and let us know we've <laughs> done, done it before. No, yes,
6: please. <laughs> <laughs> There's one other example of a curse that, uh, oddly enough, is related to Mongol stuff as well, and that is Timor, or often called Tamerlane in the West. Uh, this fear of grave consequences. Oh, wow. Get it? Do yep. you get it, Matt? Yep. Grave? Yep. Great consequences?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, let's yeah.
6: sit in it. Everybody sit in it. No, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This 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 fear echoes concerns that regard the discovery of the legendary grave of Tamerlane or Timor. In nineteen forty one, Soviet archaeologists discovered the grave of this guy, a fourteenth century Turkic Mongolian king in Samarkand, the location called Gur Emir. So in fact, okay. Let's well, just—we uh, cut it in the original edit, but at first I mispronounced it as Guri Mur.
4: I honestly don't know if you did mispronounce it. it, it, was it just, it's, it's unclear, but it's the opportunity to just make a Swedish chef joke. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, that's fine. It's it's done.
6: You're not going to go for it.
2: You
4: already did it. What though? No, Guri Go
2: ahead and try it if you're listening. Ger-mer. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> everybody you're, you're jogging past right now will just think you're a lot of fun. Yes, yeah,
4: they'll say it together. Ready?
6: Three, two, one.
4: Gary it's All right. So what's oh,
6: Gary gir- it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the location in Samarkand where they found the tomb and it bore a warning, allegedly, of a terrible fate that would befall any and all who disturbed the dead king's slumber. One worse than me will rise. Immediately afterward, according to the story, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, launching World War II's Eastern Front. So so two days after the tomb was opened, on uh, the night of June 22nd, Nazi Germany declared war, invaded the USSR. A lot of people linked it with the opening of that tomb and – The expedition was immediately wound up. The remains of the guy were sent for study in Moscow. Coincidence, right? Especially when we consider World War II was already in full swing. Yeah. People who believe in that curse think there's an additional fact. They say the turning point of the war occurred at the Battle of Stalingrad and the Soviets won exactly a month after Stalin ordered the government to return Timur's remains to Samarkand and bury him with full honors. Whoa. I'm going to say I think it's a coincidence. I think you don't need a supernatural uh curse to be decent enough to not desecrate a grave.
4: Also our Egyptologist amateur Egyptologist fancy boy was known to have a bit poor health and you know if you if you if you're not healthy something like a a bloodborne illness from a mosquito mm-hmm. might Take you out a little quicker. You you talking about Carnor Carnar Carnar, <laughs> Carnar Lord Carnivore. Carnivore. Oh, okay, but actually Arthur Conan Doyle is is one of the ones who spread the idea of this curse with mm. a, as pertained to the, uh, the Tut myth. Right? Yeah. So Tut Tut Time Arthur onion. Conan Doyle. Uh, trying to fool those people. He, but he was a bit of a, a fabulist, right? Yeah. So, right, you know. a
6: fictionist. It, yeah,
4: It is a great tale, though,
2: right? It is.
6: I mean, look, if I ever am fortunate enough to die, then I'm obviously going to have some sort of curse inscribed.
4: Yeah, you like, have That's to. what you want, right? Like yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> Does no. he have one? Yeah. Good friend. For Jesus' sake forbear, to dig the dust and close it here... Blessed be ye man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. Oh, that's great. And did
6: you notice it rhymes? Yeah, yeah, he's good at that. (laughs) He kind of
4: invented rhyming, didn't he, Shakespeare? Francis Bacon is so so
2: just awesome. (laughs) I love that guy.
6: So, yeah, so curses are common. Um, I I, I don't know. This is, as we end today's episode, first we want to thank you for hanging out with us. And we want to ask you... Do you think this tomb should be disturbed or found, especially if the people who are descended from this empire don't want it to be found? I'm of the mind definitely not. Leave well enough alone. Yeah. You know? Don't disturb the ground if uh, you're not invited. You know what I mean? And that's sort of the point of a curse, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. don't mess with my stuff
4: or you're going to get cursed.
6: But also, a lot of this depiction of it as a curse, I, I feel like it comes from the West like I couldn't find anything in Mongolian culture that said this tomb is specifically cursed I just found it being the wishes of the man interred there
4: sort of like the uh the old Kennedy curse mm-hmm. we sort of impose this notion of a cur- of a curse on a series of unfortunate events. Ooh, that right? sounds like a Netflix show <laughs> Yeah, make. or a, children, a,
6: a children's a popular series, series mm-hmm.
4: of children's books. Oh, I don't know about that.
2: By we're Lenny so
6: it. We're so prescient. Uh, this episode, by the way, let's just say we recorded that is brought to you by it, Casper
4: but... Mattresses. <laughs> okay, all right, and Netflix,
6: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and of course by Jengis Khan, mm-hmm. who uh, who has his motto has always been "Don't disturb my grave." R.I.P. R.I.P. Old Jengi. And like the legacy of Genghis Khan, we didn't even talk about the weird genetic stuff, right? Uh, Which Stuff You Should Know has a great episode on. Like his legacy, this show will continue at a later date. In the meantime, uh, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where we are Conspiracy Stuff or Conspiracy Stuff Show, some variation thereof. You can find us on Here's Where It Gets Crazy, our fantastic community page. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's it's great great conversations there. Hella good
4: memes. Lots of fun stuff. Um, I bet you we'll end up doing another Here's Where It Gets Crazy episode before long because that went really well. Yes, and it was certainly. just a great, fun grab bag way and the people on there are super smart and interesting and and no trolls need mm-hmm. apply.
6: And please also uh, – this is a personal favor – write to our super producer Paul Deckett and thank him for letting us go so long with this episode. Oh, yeah.
2: But uh, we had a great time. It's a great episode. Thank yeah. you guys. And uh, – And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one 833 stdwytk If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are
6: conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com.
2: Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good!
1: But be careful because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze Americano!
0: Gene! Huh? Oh! Run!
1: Listen
4: to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.